Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do follow and share it with a friend. And a five-star review will always help in a big way wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you really enjoy the episodes, then please do consider becoming a patron of the show. Finally, sign up to our free monthly newsletter, giving you some much-needed updates in the world of adventure. Just use the link in the description. Today's guest is Holly Budge. Holly is an incredible woman with a CV to fit. Her mountaineering experience takes her from Mount Rainier through Mongolia and into the Himalayas where she's climbed Everest via the North Col. She's climbed Barunsi, Chuoyu. She's uh, scaled Amadablam, led a team up there as well. She's also skydived, the second woman straight after the first person to skydive above Mount Everest as well, which is a story in itself which we'll dive into very quickly. And she's ridden semi-wild horses across Mongolia. So an incredible CV to then top off doing conservation work, protecting elephants. So a fantastic interview coming up. I really, really do hope you enjoy it. We're going to dive into the skydiving soon enough, but with no further ado, let's find out a bit more about Holly and what got her into this side of her career. And as you're listening, if you want to get in touch, btmtravelpod at gmail.com. Let me know if you've done any interesting skydives or have any plans to go mountaineering in the Himalayas as well. Let's get into it. So Holly, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing amazingly. How are you doing, Chris? Yeah, I'm doing fantastic. So um, I, I wanted to start at the beginning with you. Uh, so how would you describe growing up? Was it adventurous? Was it laid back? Um, I would say it was adventurous. Um, I feel really fortunate to have grown up at a time where we just didn't have technology. Um, you know, I spent most of my time that I could in the outdoors. Um, and I think that's really, uh, that set me up really well. And certainly for my work going forward as a conservationist as well. But yeah, I, I was, uh, I did a lot of competing as a child. I used to do tetrathlons, so running, swimming, shooting and horse riding. Wow. Um, and I think I was really competitive. I've always been competitive. I loved school. I loved doing all the sports at school. But what the competition taught me was, you know, you fall off the horse, you get you get back up, you dust yourself down and you get back on. It kind of really toughened me up and, and really taught me the role of uh, being in a team. So I did all the competing in a team. And even when we were seven or eight, we were really competitive and really good. We, we won most of our competitions and we were, you know, we were on a mission. So, um, yeah, I think that instilled some really good uh, lessons early on for me. So some good foundations there then. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I, I feel you as well with the um, fortunate to grow up with low tech. It's um, it'll be interesting to see what well, again. I've got a five year old daughter, so it'll be interesting to see when she as she grows how we confront that issue. Because <laughs> I yeah, like to get her outdoors crazy, as much as I can. It? When it's scary when a three year old or a four year old starts giving you iPhone advice. It's just yeah, so, that's crazy. <laughs> so ingrained in their in their culture, but. Um, you know, and in their being, they don't know any different. But for us, you know, it was uh, VHS tapes were pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just um, I just recovered Pokemon Two Thousand on VHS and Ducktales from a uh, from my garage today, actually. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> so, um, as far as I can see, uh, publicly, your journey began when you found a, a move that your career advisor didn't mention in school, which is skydiving. Uh, what was it that led you to free fall into this career? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what was that about? Why, why didn't the careers advisor tell me about jumping out yeah. of aeroplanes and getting paid for it? Um, yeah, so um, I, I guess I went, uh, how old was I then? 21 when I went traveling to New Zealand and Australia. Um, and I did a tandem skydive like most backpackers or many backpackers do. But I guess where I was possibly a little bit different is when I got back down from the first jump and and just for the record that 60 seconds of adrenaline and and total sheer terror did change the course of my life it's incredible right there and then. I, I wanted to go back up and do it again um straight away but i think i was most um blown away with the fact that people were actually getting 
employed to jump out of aeroplanes every day of the year. So I decided that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a skydiving camera woman in New Zealand. Pretty far-fetched goal, given that I knew no one in New Zealand, I knew nothing about skydiving, and I knew nothing about filming. But none of that mattered, because I knew I could have a go, I could learn those skills, or I, I could try. So came back to the UK, carried on working in London as a graphic designer, um, saved up enough money to go back to New Zealand, put myself through my skydiving course, and really commit to this goal. It sounded a bit silly, like having a, such a strong focus when you really, when you're you're a total beginner. But um, yeah, I just felt compelled to uh, to follow that that lifestyle choice. And I'm so glad I did, Chris. It was a total life changer. Um, so I, I got my dream job several months later. Um, I was getting paid to jump out of planes up to 12 times a day, every day. It took me three skydives to pay for my month's rent. So I've never been as wealthy as I was disposable income wow. at 21. And it just, it was a magical time. And I was with magical people. So it really instilled that, that sense of anything is, anything is possible. And indeed it was. That's, that was the mindset. So I feel very, very fortunate, but fortunate for following, following that passion and that dream too. Mm. I mean, a lot of people would have gone home and announced to their family or their parents that they're moving to New Zealand to become a skydiving camera woman. And that's where I was also fortunate in that my parents said, brilliant, go for it. And, yeah. and so I've really tried to carry on that mindset. I'm 42 now. And I call it hanging on to your 21 year old mindset where you mm. don't overthink, you're not over procrastinating, you just give it a go. And sometimes that is hard, especially as you know, life gets in the way and, and that older brain has more reasoning. And, but uh, yeah, that, that was a real game changer for me. And, and it's taken me on some pretty incredible adventures. So yeah, I'm happy for that, that I did that skydive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I've just recently done one as well. It's uh, it is incredible for anyone listening. It's incredible. You have to do it. Where did you do it, Chris? I did it go skydive in Salisbury. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I spent the entire time. I watched the Will Smith uh, video on him using skydive as a as a, a metaphor for fear, uh, and so I spent the whole flight up to fifteen thousand feet going. Go, no, no, you, you can't wait to have this experience. You can't wait to finally have what you've paid for. Yes, you can't wait to experience whatever else does because I've got vertigo. So I was, I was like battling with my mind. But Wow, but, uh, well, good on you then. That's yeah. amazing. But I, That's really I heard somewhere that you hadn't skydived for about eight years or so. Is that right? Yeah, more than that. I haven't skydived now for 10 years. Yeah, Damn. so I've just moved on to, to other things. And to be honest, I did a lot of skydiving in... in uh, over the years and, and it just you know you get sort of uh move on to to uh pastures green so um that's what's happened and now i i climb mountains more than throw myself out of aeroplanes <laughs> it's all been a journey yeah it's not a bad balance do you see yourself returning to it anytime soon um it's funny because i my husband i met my husband in in new zealand he was a skydiver as well so we met because we we're both working at the same company and he's done a lot more jumps than I have. And he also hasn't jumped for 10 years. Hmm. And we were saying the other day, it would be funny to, to do it again, because, you know, it would be terrifying again. Yeah. Obviously not as terrifying as that first time when, especially the first solo. But um, yeah, it would still be, you know, you'd still get the butterflies in the, the stomach. And I remember, Chris, when I was, did my first solo jump, I, I remember looking at my instructors and, and the other cameramen in the plane and thinking, God, how are they looking so relaxed? They're laughing, joking. And, and that became me. When I was working as a camera woman, I was that one laughing and joking and totally relaxed. So it is amazing what you can uh, get your head around. So fear, um, you know, you really can, what, what's once really scary to you, you can make it quite normal. And yeah. jumping out of the plane became very normal for me. And very, uh, very um, admirable to you as well, because I've, I've seen videos between the tandem skydive, which is what I did, where you're just attached to a bloke and off you, off you fall. And then there's other videos I've seen where you can do your first ever skydive on your own. And, yeah. and yeah. you have a one person holding on to you each side and you just kind of rock <laughs> side to side and then jump out of the plane. I think yeah. there's a big step between having no yeah. choice uh, yeah. and, and choosing to jump out yourself. So yeah, fair play to you. 
but so due to all that i am happily jealous of the fact that you uh you got to skydive above mount everest how, how does it feel to have achieved that amazing um but at the time it was terrifying i um i actually fell out of the plane that definitely wasn't part of the plan um so just to rewind a little bit when i heard about the opportunity to skydive um, Mount Everest and it was a world first expedition um, I just knew that that wasn't something I was going to miss out on as a skydiver mm. I thought you know this is this is made for me this has got my name written all over it yeah and I rang the organizer and there were no other women signed up so I knew that was my hook for getting sponsors on board and the organizer said can I count you on board Holly and I said yeah absolutely count me on board and he said that will be twenty-four thousand pounds. Mm-hmm. I was like, um, "Yep, okay, definitely count me on board." And I thought, "What have I got to lose? You know, I'm just gonna give it my all to get the sponsors." I certainly didn't have twenty-four thousand pounds to pay for it myself, yeah. so that gave me this this sort of real push to uh, to sell my passion and my my vision. And that's exactly what happened. I managed to get sponsors on board. So the skydive Everest jump itself, we jumped from 29 and a half thousand feet from a small aircraft that had never flown to that altitude before. So we didn't even know if the plane was going to make it to that height. Um, so that, you know, was interesting. And then had the uh, oxygen, supplemental oxygen in um, from the plane. And then we switched to a bottle just before we jumped out. Mm. And the first person to skydive Everest was about three seconds in front of me. So this, we were, you know, the whole plane, it was a a pretty new experience. Um, So he got out and then my camera flyer climbed out onto the camera step and I moved to the door. I'm giving my count ready set. And my camera flyer's hand started pushing me back into the the plane. They had their hand on my shoulder. Hmm. And I didn't realize at the time, but the pilot had held up the stop sign and said, don't let the jumpers out. Too late. Uh, Had too much momentum on the the go, ready, set, go, and was actually backpedaling in the door. And I I fell out of the plane. So it was pretty terrifying. What I quickly realized was uh, the clouds when you're at this, these kind of altitudes, the minute you you see the clouds, you're, you're very quickly engulfed in them. And that's what happened. It was almost complete cloud cover. Yeah, so that was pretty scary. Um, and I was hell-bent on finding this landing area. There were, no, there were very few other places to land in this environment. Um, the landing area was perfectly big enough, assuming you made it back there. Mm. So I, I was really focused on finding it. Came through the clouds, 18,000 feet, pulled my parachute decided to take my oxygen mask off because it was obscuring my vision. And when you're skydiving, there's no one there to ask, you know, Mm. you really have to back yourself, whether it's your first jump or your 10,000th jump, you know, you you have to back yourself to make good decisions. So I decided to take the oxygen mask off and then I found, I luckily made it back to the landing area. About three minutes after I landed, complete whiteout, couldn't see meter or two in front of me felt very fortunate to have walked away safely from that jump yeah same thing happened a couple of days later um some more jumpers got out of the plane um and the pilots like don't let them out they'd already gone and for them unfortunately the the cloud went all the way to the ground so they had no visuals and and one girl um had a pretty nasty accident another guy landed in a yak farm you know all it was all going on they confused him for one yeah so yeah i landed uh, reuters the global news agency microphone straight in front of my face mm. um, the next thing I, I i went back to the uk the following day was upgraded on the way home cameraman had to stay in economy so that was quite amusing <laughs> seen in london and then put in a hotel room courtesy of the bbc and did six live tv interviews um two of which were in america cnn cbs and that was probably the second most terrifying thing of the whole expedition was just i didn't realize naively maybe that the uh the media would pick the story up and, and yeah. it would be tv radio da, 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 da. yeah so one of the american ladies the news reporter on cnn asked me um well first of all i got put in a room 
with just a camera and she said they said don't look anywhere but the camera lens um, so that that was you know a bit daunting and then she asked me how did I acclimate and um, a bit hot around the collar moment uh, answered it in a very British way and said very well thank you and you yeah. <laughs> so that's acclimatized for anyone that's yeah. uh, not familiar us across the camera. pond yeah <laughs> yeah so um but no, it was an amazing experience and a huge amount of money. 300,000 US dollars was raised um, for charity. And we sent out computers to the local schools that we'd visited. Um, so it was, it was, you know, it was so much more than just a, a selfish endeavor on my part yeah. to become the first woman to skydive Everest. So yeah, amazing experience. When you were falling, uh, falling out the plane and through the sky, did, did you, I was interested to know what was going through your mind, other than the sort of, you know, need to find landing spot. Did, were you scared the whole time or did you find this weird sort of training kicked in and you just stayed focused on what to do? Or? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Chris, because I think a lot of the time when you, when stuff does, when the wheels do fall off a little bit, you kind of, well, certainly for me, I've, I've had it a few times skydiving um, and generally actually, and the, the world kind of slows down. And uh, everything kind of becomes a bit slow motion and your mind just totally kicks in and you become this like ninja, you know, <laughs> you, just, you just deal with it. Um, I've had several skydiving incidents that could have gone really wrong through equipment failure and a little bit my fault too. Um, and it's amazing how this, just the world hums, just goes very quiet and very slow and you literally just do what you have to do i'm not sure if, if anyone else has experienced that but uh yeah i'm sure you're not alone i'm sure you're not alone felt that a few times so we had cloud coverage we had uh, a parachute three times the size as normal to account for the the lack of any air yeah. pressure <laughs> but um what other logistic hurdles did you come across to, to jump there um probably just the combating the the freezing uh, temperatures the wind chill was minus 60 at 29 and a half thousand feet so we had specially made suits I'd never jump with ski goggles on and I mean I just had no skin exposed and yeah obviously I'd never um, um I'd never jump with oxygen before so that was that was a new one for me as well so yeah it didn't it wasn't the most comfortable it felt quite clunky it felt like being a beginner again with a big heavy parachute and you know, everything it, it didn't feel overly comfortable, but you know, I guess comfort wasn't the the priority there. So <laughs> yeah, the, the achievement was, I suppose. Um, and you kind of touched upon it just now as well. So I, I'm interested to know: uh, Do you think you can draw parallels between skydiving and life itself? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. as I said, with the decision making, yeah. I think you've got to uh, back yourself to make make uh, well believe in the decisions that you are making and you know, that just becomes even more to the fore when it's a life or death situation. But certainly in life, I think my uh, biggest message that I, I talk about with people is is turning up, turn up with the right skills and put the preparation in. Mm. Um, because that does make life easier when the wheels do fall off, if you are prepared, if you've got no idea what you're doing, and you really are thrown into a, you know, thrown into the deep end, that, that's a pretty scary place to be. And obviously, you know, with skydiving, you can do your best to uh, mitigate the risks, but there's always going to be those those things that you you can't um, account for, like falling out of an aeroplane, for example, um, or you know, the the weather coming in as quickly as it did, maybe, um, you know, lots of variables there. But I am a bit of a, I, I, I'm not uh, one of these adrenaline junkies. I definitely do like to. Uh, mitigate risk as much as possible you know and, and really it's calculated risk well that's um, what it's all about I mean yeah. at the time of this release uh, we've got an episode with Tim Howlout he's a base jumper uh, yeah. we've interviewed Graham Zimmerman before uh, a mountaineer uh, climb, yeah. climbs mountains and they both say you know yes of course the adrenaline's lovely but it is absolutely about making it as safe as possible because you want to keep doing it for years and years and years you don't want to stop today so and i like how you you just said yes as well to the opportunity and that seems to be a something you encourage people to do quite a lot uh, i mean I, I guess so with the the importance of saying yes oh it's brilliant it's a, a liberating word say yes and worry about the details later it, it once you've committed it does well for me anyway it just drives and motivates me to to really chase after those sponsors or, or get 
my physical fitness or you know whatever i just need that goal i'm i'm pretty goal orientated yeah i think you've seen the film yes yes <clears throat> sorry uh, yes man with uh, jim carrey yes <laughs> it's just such an amazing film <laughs> yeah no it's great um I, I i think it's um i love dave cornthwaite's uh an adventurer his saying is say yes more and it's just so true you know just say yes and and then and then worry about the, the finer details after that yeah precisely moving away from skydiving but staying on everest you've also been lucky enough to summit everest and i wanted to get a, a negative yet important to discuss topic out the way with first so uh, I think you'll know what this means. What lessons in human interaction did you learn when climbing Everest? You know, I was really bowled over with Everest for many reasons. Everest is an incredible place. It's a beautiful mountain, but it's it's also a place like nowhere else I've ever been before. Um, so I climbed Everest on the uh, north side from Tibet, mostly because I wanted to avoid the queues. I didn't want to be standing in a queue. I still found myself in a queue on the north side, but a much smaller queue. Also on the north side, there's no rescue. There's no helicopters. Um, the Chinese won't allow helicopters in the airspace. So that adds an extra dimension to it because you really do have to pretty much walk off that mountain again. Um, my husband's a helicopter pilot, so he had this kind of romantic idea of hiring a helicopter in Nepal and zipping around the other side of the mountain and rescuing me but the reality is it's not gonna happen so yeah there was such a diverse diversity of people on Everest so you had sort of your your uh, mountaineers and people that, that that knew what they were doing and had the skills and knowledge and had done the preparation like we spoke about before um, but then you met people that had never stepped foot on snow before they'd never put on a pair of crampons and they're going to the summit which it's just, I mean, that just blows me away every single time. But also um, in the base camp, some of the camps had uh, plastic palm trees were brought in. They had, you can now have a room with a private hot tub in it. Um, there was foosball machines. Um, there was waiters serving three course meals out of, you know, metal, metal silverware. Um, it's kind of a acclimatizing to the the tourist nature and taking away the expedition nature, really, isn't it? The, the best one was the Serrano ham that you could shave. <laughs> um, but the reason I'm jo joking about this is because jokes aside, the minute you leave base camp, there's no luxury on that mountain. So if that, you know, if if you need that level of luxury at base camp, then you've got a real shock ahead of you for for the minute you leave. Yeah. base camp you know even advanced base camp six and a half thousand meters is it's not it's not a comfortable altitude when you first you know get up there it's it's pretty uh pretty damn high um so i climbed everest as a two-man team which is uh rare um and the reason i climbed as a two-man team is because i was uh part of a 16-man team and i was the only girl and I'm going to just give you the brief story on that. But hmm. I had to separate myself from that team within the first two weeks um, because I got really sick. I couldn't hold any food in. Um, I couldn't leave my tent for a week. And not one of those uh, team members came to visit me to see if I was OK during that time. The only people that came to see me were the Sherpas. And they, the Sherpas are my friends. I've worked with them before. I've climbed with them on uh, many mountains before. And they really were looking out for me. But the main lesson I learned with, with that experience, because I, I was not in a good place and I felt mentally uh, completely, you know, weak and drained. Attacked as well, I think. And physically weak and drained. Yeah, and felt my dream was slipping away from me. But the main thing I took away with it from it was uh, if people haven't got your back at base camp they most certainly haven't got your back higher up on the mountain so I took the decision there to move out of the camp separate myself from the team to be honest it it was already uh, becoming a very lowbrow uh, kind of like a, a stag do 60 day stag do um, and, and the it was it was pretty bad early on um, lots of bad names for women etc it was quite you know uh, there was quite a lot of discrimination towards women very Just early boys, on. basically. So I, 
yeah, I was okay with moving away from, from, the, uh, from the team, moved in with the Sherpas, which was a huge privilege because normally the, you know, Westerners don't go, don't eat and hang out with the Sherpas. That, that's their space, you know, yeah. um, but they could see what was happening. They uh, saw exactly what was happening. Um, anyway, uh, cut forward a few weeks. I then um, summited, had an amazing responsible summit. Uh, me and Jang Bu, um, we climbed as a as an equal team. He didn't have a super heavy bag, and me have, carrying nothing. We both had um, pretty heavy bags actually. My my summit pack was about thirteen kilos, so um, you know, quite a, an amount to uh, to to be carrying up at, at eight thousand meters plus. Um, and so yeah, we had a great summit. We had half an hour on the summit to ourselves, just mm -hmm. the two of us on the north side and a beautiful blue day. And that was all, all an amazing experience. But then on the way back down, we got, weren't so lucky. We got caught in a storm and had to spend a night at 8,300 meters. Pretty stressful night. Imagine That's, you don't get much sleep at that altitude. Yeah, the death zone, isn't it? For, for the commercialized death zone. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it was, I mean, you know, the winds were just not relenting and, and it was it was pretty scary mm. and thinking I really need to we need to get off this mountain. Um, so uh, the next morning we, we managed to get down to advanced base camp, but that took nine hours because the winds at times we were just lying flat on the ground because the winds were so strong. What hadn't helped is my tracker had fallen off the mountain, not physically. It was on me the whole time, but on the screen at home. The tracker, had, the, the little dot had fallen off the mountain for 16 hours. So people were just freaking out, thinking I'd, I'd fallen off the mountain. Oh, so that was, a, that was a bad timing of, of a, a tech error there. Um, so, yeah, we made it off the mountain. But And, and the other thing that I found really profound on, on Everest was actually stepping over the dead. You know, everyone knows there's dead bodies mm. on Everest, over 260. And many of those are Sherpas. And, and that's, you know, that's not always because they haven't got the skills to be there. <laughs> I saw some pretty horrendous sights. I got quoted for calling Everest a zombie apocalypse movie because you have the dead and then there's the near dead. So you, you're not sure who's actually died because, you know, there is the dead and then there's someone draped over a rock and then they'll kind of move an arm and a leg. And then you realise that they're Sherpas sitting around the corner of the rock having a cigarette pulling his hair out because this person is is barely conscious and they've just been dragged up the sherpas sit behind them on the summit to support them for the summit photo embarrassing and then, and then drag them back down and i'd never seen anything like it on any other mountain i've climbed so it was it was a bit of a you know a bit of an eye-opener that one so anyway, these guys that I'd separated from, they half of them didn't summit. Some of them did, but they they had a they were in a pretty bad way, like badly frostbitten, and 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 it wasn't a, an overly enjoyable summit experience for many of them. Um, and then when I got back to base camp, this uh, social media uh, campaign had been set up by friends and families obviously there's there's the story's a bit quite a lot longer than this but it was kind of that whole keyboard warrior people that aren't there they don't know what's going on um uh, putting their oar in and, and there was some really um, aggressive behavior towards me um and it actually ended up going legal when i got home i had to uh, literally go down that the legal route for for character defamation and slander mm -hmm. and libel and and it was horrible but what was interesting was a none of them ever said anything to my face um and they were ringing ahead of events that i was speaking at that's my bread and butter doing uh you know motivational uh speaking and um you know the organizers of these events knew me so they didn't cancel my slot because they knew that i was a uh, you know uh being uh bullied and and, and a victim of a, of a horrible a horrible situation um but none of these bullies turned up at these events either of course that just mm. goes without saying doesn't it yeah the, uh, of course approach but yeah i guess it was i've never been bullied before and and i've never been a, a victim of that and it was 
it was awful. It just punched me somewhere, like really punched me in the guts. And you just felt like the whole world was against you and, and, and closing in on you. And it was a really deeply uh, upsetting and personal experience because they were going no. on to uh, public platforms and uh, just coming out with all sorts of, of nonsense, really. It takes away um, perspective, doesn't it? It, it, it makes you stop seeing the whole picture. It, it unfortunately just grabs your attention and focuses it on their negative that they're putting in front of you. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and as we know, we all know these day and age, social media, there's so much aggression and, and negativity on there. And, yeah. you know, nowadays, if I come across any of that, because, you know, doing a lot with the uh, elephants and conservation and, you know, these are all contentious subjects. And the minute I get that sort of sense of that, that bullyish keyboard warrior that you've lost me, the shutters have gone down and I just think, take, take your negativity and, and go somewhere else with it. Um, Very but, polite way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what struck me um, is interesting, Chris, is people started coming out of the woodwork, men and women who had experienced the same things on Everest. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating um, because their stories were almost identical to mine. So what I've put that down to is um, Everest is a, is a brilliant place and an amazing playground, um, you know, but it's also a big box ticker for people that just, just want to tick that box. And if you can throw enough money at it, of course. Mm, they, they can pay their way to the, to the top. Absolutely. Yeah, so it kind of put a negative slant on it. But as I was just saying, I, I, I've kind of put it down to um, when ego, ego and fear is a really bad combination. If, you, if, you, if you've got ego, fear and high altitude, it's, it's never going to end up well. So my message is if you've got the right skills and you've got the right knowledge and you've put the preparation in, you don't need ego. You can, you can leave the ego behind get on with it and enjoy it so that's what I've learned from that horrible experience and my message to anyone else that is going through that um, in in whatever capacity is you know for me reaching out and, and chatting to people about that was was a massive part of of um, you know recovering from that horrible experience and you mentioned to me Chris oh I've only heard you talk about this a couple of times on on the uh, you know, other podcasts and other interviews. And for two and a half years, I didn't mention this. I was too scared to talk about it. Um, I didn't want to mention it. So now speaking about it and, and voicing that experience is, is you know, it's, it's empowering because, you know, it didn't take anything away now for me. You know, I, I still think, yeah, I gave that everything, that mountain, and I knew I had a good responsible summit. And yeah. I wouldn't have changed anything about the actual climb. Um, but it definitely has made me think twice about, uh, you know, who you go with and how, you know, what yeah. their background is and how well you know them, et cetera. And brilliant that you remove the negativity as well. Brilliant yeah. that you you chose, you didn't yeah. just think, oh, well, well, this is it now. You actually chose to step out of base camp and go, no, two-person team, let's do this. Yeah, thank you. Moving to the more positive side of Everest as well, you said that you spent 30 minutes on the summit, which is just incredible. So... Uh, you know, you know obviously the views i imagine are just insane yeah. but what ran through your mind for 30 minutes at the top oh, i mean you're just trying to take it all in you know and just thinking oh my god i'm sitting on the summit of everest and you know there's no one else here like what a privilege to be able to to savor that moment or those few moments um and the view, I mean, Everest isn't a very big summit, so it's pretty dramatic. It drops away really steeply. And then you're looking over, you're looking down on mountains that you know are really big mountains <laughs> and you're looking down on them. So that is, that's an odd one as well. Um, but also, Chris, I'm glad you kind of brought that up because um, also for me, the summit is only halfway. Mm. So you've always got this thing of, yeah, this is amazing. This is brilliant. And I was on the summit really late in the day. I mean, me and Jangbu didn't hit the summit till half one in the day, which is late, but we'd totally planned for that. We, we um, let the teams ahead of us. Um, there was a Chinese and an Indian team ahead of us and they were big teams mm. and we didn't want to um, 
get stuck behind them. So we let them go. We spent a bit longer at, at high camp and we still actually had to wait about three hours when we met them coming back down. There was a bottleneck. So we had to wait for them. But just knowing you are the two highest people on earth, you're feeling good. You know, of course, you're you're tired and the altitude is tough. You know, your mm. mind, body is screaming, screaming. No, mind is whispering. Yes, come on, you can do this. And, and I've been asked before, you know, when you see the dead body and you step over them, does, do you not think about turning around there and then and going back down? And it's like, absolutely not. You know, that comes back to the, the skills and the preparation and having other mountains under your belt before going to Everest, knowing how, you know, how you're feeling in yourself. And if you're obviously not feeling well, turn around, go down. But mm-hmm. you know, if you're feeling great, and until we got caught in a storm coming back down, everything was just amazing, like really uh, enjoyable summit. So disappointing to spend. I mean, it, I was on the mountain 47 days and it would just be terrible to, to get up there and just complete whiteout, no view and a queue. So you have less than two minutes on the summit, have a photo. It would just be heartbreaking. So I, I, I really did feel... Um, very fortunate for for being able to study that view having the time to really piece it together and figure out where we'd walked and the route we'd taken you know i could i can only imagine it's yeah, yeah. sounds so insane yeah it was so i wanted to ask as well from from mount rainier to Chowu, what does your mountaineering experience look like in highlights yeah so when i first laid eyes on mount everest when i skydived it i knew we one past it <laughs> I knew one day I'd be back to climb it or at mm. least try. Um, but I knew nothing about mountaineering and, and climbing. So I set about learning. Um, and I, Mount Rainier was my first mountain in the States. And that, looking back, that, that was a fairly challenging first mountain. I mean, that was a 24 hour summit push. There was one section where they're like, just don't stop here, don't stop because there's falling rocks and there's just like a boulder filled. And, thinking oh my gosh and then we're jumping over crevasses and I mean it was all going on it was it was it was not the uh as a benchmark for climbing it it kind of you know I thought wow if it's all if it's all like this I'm obviously doing all right at it Um, and we were roped together on on Rainier so that again was different than the Himalayan fixed line climbing so yeah I quickly found myself back in the Himalayas I climbed Mira Peak and Burunsi in one one trip um, and that was quite an eye opener because, you know, going up to 7,000 meters is, 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 you know, it's getting a uh, pretty high yeah. and Burinci, Burinci is one of the most remotest peaks, um, in Nepal and it's called death Valley. Cause when the weather comes in, they can't get a helicopter in there and you have to go in out over, um, two really high passes. So you really are in, in this Valley with this mountain. And there were these tiny little ledges that you had to shuffle across with massive exposure, like thousand meter or more drop to one side and then a slightly lesser drop to the other. For me, it was okay because I was used to skydiving. So I I kind of had a head for heights, but it was, um, it was, it was a pretty challenging um, third mountain, you know, Um, but it, it was that's how that's how it panned out um and then i did uh choyoyu so that was my first 8000 meter peak and i'd done a few smaller peaks uh, and i've done a f- bit of climbing in new zealand as well new zealand they're not high but they are they they're pretty technical and and mm. you know you can't let you can't be fooled by the height um so the first 8000 meter peak uh that extra thousand meters getting up into the death zone you you really do start to notice it you know that's when your lungs start really uh, hurting and and it even simple things like walking and breathing become quite a challenge hmm. um so i was one of only five people that summited that year that whole season so we were 38 days on that mountain and that was um that was pretty tough but what you have to remember also is very different styles of climbing. I haven't done a huge amount of uh, alpine style climbing and I absolutely take my hat off to those guys. Um, not putting Himalayan climbing down, but 
99% of the people there wouldn't be able to do those mountains without the Sherpas putting those ropes up. So the Sherpas are the total heroes, you know, they're, they're doing the hard, hard yeah. work and you are clipping on and following a line up still challenging, but you, you're not, you're not finding your route and uh, you know, figuring it out yourself. You're, yeah. you're following what they've already put up. So two very different styles of climbing. And I've climbed Amma de Blam. I, I led an expedition on that mountain. And I mean, that's a crazy mountain. It's, it's uh, next to Everest. It's 6,800 meters. You're still rock climbing at 6,000 meters. It's mixed climbing. That was quite a game changer for me, that mountain. I, I got extremely um, dehydrated. We had a really slow, long summit push and I was hallucinating. And I mean, it was pretty intense from the summit to the high camp was 41 abseils. Um, doing anything 41 times is, is tough, but um, it, we got down in the dark and it was, it was just, you know, people uh, have been lost on Amadablam for clipping the wrong rope because they, all the ropes from the previous years are left at the anchor points. So you've got a big bundle of ropes. You've got to be pretty uh, clear about which, which rope was put up that season and what you're clipping onto. And the exposure on that mountain was massive, you know, really huge drops down. And it was the most intense mountain I've ever climbed. Yeah. So, but, you know, I probably, I had a good two handfuls of, of, of big mountains under my belt before I turned up for Everest and Everest it's not a technical mountain it's it's a mm. long walk at high altitude and it's the altitude that is is the tough part and the amount of time that you've spent on the mountain mm. so 47 days above 5,000 meters is it's not it's not easy you know your body starts uh you know every time you go up for your acclimatization you do three rounds and um you know you're just getting more tired each time so yeah that's a kind of whole different beast everest that's just the, the the time on the mountain and the altitude and i met a girl who was doing Amma de Blanc for her second mountain i was like wow good luck with that yeah i couldn't even Fair imagine <laughs> yeah yeah i mean she didn't make it to the top but um talk about jumping in the deep end i guess yeah i mean geez that would just yeah, I mean, if you just thought every single mountain was like that, that would put a whole new spin on it. <laughs> yeah, you turn up well over-prepared over for Ben Nevis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did the three peaks and I, I, um, I'd never had toe bang before and I lost my whole big toe on the first of the three peaks, on the first peak, and it was excruciating. So I, I really wanted to kind of touch on on your conservation work as well and, and give you a, a moment to talk about it really it, it's super important work and i didn't want to try and butcher a description so tell us a bit about the work that you're doing yeah absolutely um so just to give you a bit of background on that um, as much as i loved doing my adventuring and as much as i loved getting paid to jump out of airplanes i felt after a few years i wasn't I wanted to return to my creative roots. I wasn't sort of using the creative side of my brain as much as I wanted to be. So seven years ago, I went and did a master's in sustainable design. And I was actually studying a material called vegetable ivory, which is a nut from a palm tree from South America. And it's an incredible material, but it's it's got an amazing story around it in its own right. But it was its material similarity to elephant ivory that got me researching the African elephant crisis. And I just didn't stop. I haven't stopped. That was seven years ago. I was so bowled over by the statistics that I was reading that 96 elephants poached a day, 35,000 a year. Um, and I was also... The more I researched, I, I sort of, I wasn't uh, able to connect with the really gruesome images. And, you know, I just found that a little bit too much. So I wanted to use my design skills to come up with a campaign that could raise awareness um, of the African elephant crisis, um, but without any gruesome or gory images. So I took the data and I made it visual in a nutshell. So I built this necklace, which is 96 elephants cut in vegetable ivory to show the daily poaching rate. Now this necklace is quite a piece. It's won uh, five design awards so far. I weaved a narrative into the piece. One elephant is hand cut in brass, 
because the poachers bullet shells are commonly made from brass and one elephant is facing the other way to say that um, you know there's still hope and the elephant isn't extinct in the wild yet. Um, to accompany this necklace is my hard-hitting exhibition which has been traveling around the world pre-lockdown yeah. um, and that showcases 35,000 elephants on a wall. So if you just tell someone 35,000 of anything, we can't visualize it. It's, it's just, not a number you're able to, to think about. No, it's just an abstract collection of numbers. Um, so to actually see 35,000 elephants on a wall and they're divided into 96. So each square has got 96 and then there's 365 squares. And the whole exhibition is 18 meters long. And I've, I've literally had people turn up and burst into tears and just said, we had no idea of the scale of this crisis. You know, we just didn't know. Well, a lot of people didn't know it was going on at all, but mm. a lot of people had no idea of the sheer volume of elephants that are being lost. And in some of the exhibitions I had, um, two years ago, I had the exhibition in a, in a converted chapel and we had 100,000 elephants in this space. So just, you know, three years uh, just under three years of um, of poaching and, and then telling people that there's only around 400,000 left in the wild. So there was only four times that chapel left. But the thing with the exhibition is it because it's non-gruesome, it's allowed me to connect with all sorts of different audiences. I've done a huge amount of work with children in schools. They'll then colour in their own elephant in the same style as the exhibition and then have their own exhibitions at school. And that's proved to be a really popular way of spreading this, the word as well, because they take ownership of their own bit of art, and then they tell their, their family and their peers and their teachers. Adults as well have gotten involved too. And um, we have a, um, a, a global coloring campaign. So I'm trying to get hundreds of thousands of elephants from all over the world. And then one day just have the exhibition in its next iteration with people's um, artworks as the exhibition. So I guess, yeah, uh, to su summarize all of that, it's about using design to bridge the gap between scientific data and human connection. But another huge part of the campaign is, is bringing my adventures into it. So it's all adventure with purpose these days. Um, no more world first, no more world records, just interested in uh, the, the impact that the yeah. adventures can have. So in the last two years, I've, I've had a, the absolute privilege of spending time on the front line with um, two all-female anti-poaching Black teams. Mambas, right? The Black Mambas in South Africa. So these women, um, they're unarmed. They have pepper spray and handcuffs. And then Akashinga, who Nat Geo have recently released a film about. So maybe uh, people are familiar with them, but they're fully armed. So being out on overnight patrol with Akashinga just blew any adventure that I'd ever done completely out of the window. It was insane. We were mm. in the middle of nowhere. It's pitch dark. They've all got AK-47s. I don't. There's wild beasts out there. There's signs of poachers. And it, is, it, was, it was pretty real. Like I felt more exposed than I've ever felt um, in that there was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide these women who I barely knew were my lifeline. Yeah, it's just intense, like hats off to them because that, that's their job. They're doing this every day. Um, and they put me in their uniform too, to try and make me blend in. But of course I stand out like an absolute sore thumb out in the bush <laughs> being a, a white, white woman. And they said it was, they were sort of laughing because they said, you know, people that are very in tune with the bush could literally smell, smell us a mile away, you know, with, shampoo in your hair you know the smell of your deodorant or your washing detergent in so you didn't yeah. bear grills yourself at all and wipe mud all over <laughs> your face and your pets no <laughs> no i probably should have to be honest um, but yeah i mean for the senses that was overwhelming like it was just seeing you know the, the, the elephants out in the wild and you know, oh, it's phenomenal. I could talk about that all day. But through my campaign now, I'm very, very focused on uh, supporting these female rangers. Um, and I've raised lots of money, which um, goes, you know, to support them on the ground. And I think for me having a, sorry, I missed out a key part in, in all of this. I am, um, I, my 
campaign is a registered charity now called How Many Elephants? Um, so through my registered charity, um, you know, we um, award grants to um, on the ground direct action initiatives. And it's, it's, I love one of my favorite things is actually seeing really the impact that money is making and exactly where that money is being spent. Because I think often people want to help, they want to give to charity, but there's always this sort of a niggling feeling that you don't know where that money is actually going to go and end up. Um, so being a, a small charity, we really work closely with the, the initiatives on the ground. And, and it's just amazing the, how a little can go a very long way. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So for anyone listening, you can check out the, the, the blog on the website or in the description of the, the podcast and you'll be able to, uh, you'll be able to go and donate if you wish to as well. I'll make sure that's there. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. And there's loads of ways to get involved. You know, if you're sitting there thinking I want to help, I want to get involved, but I'm not sure how reach out, you can get in touch with me through the website, howmanyelephants.org. But there's also lots of different ways people can get involved and it's not only monetary. Um, You know, we um, have a volunteer scheme. You can color in an elephant, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways to, uh, to make a difference. So Mm. um, yeah. And I'm, I'm bowled over with the people that have come forward volunteering their time and skills, um, you know, just because people just want to want to help, want to get involved. Yeah. 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 But these women are incredible. They are, you know, becoming a ranger has totally empowered them. And it's they're now the breadwinners, they're role models in their communities. They're changing the role, um, the attitudes towards the role of women in Africa and globally and they're beacons of hope and they're just to spend time with them. Um, they're, they're just, they're so strong and tough because they've had to be, but equally they're just so, um, you know, I've, 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 I could just have brilliant conversations with them as well and, and really try and gain some insight into what drives and motivates them to do this work. Cause as I said, I was out with them for just a few weeks or a few days with um, Akashinga and, you know, this is their, this is their life. This is how they live. And it's, it's pretty intense way to, uh, to make a living. So moving to Mongolia now, first question really is just about the time you went into the Mongolian Altai Altai mountains and you did that first ascent. I was wondering what lessons did you learn from that trip? Wow. Um, A lot of, lot of lessons were learned on that trip. That was pretty far removed from fixed line Himalayan climbing, going where no man is, has ever been is, is, is incredibly liberating, but it also comes with a very unique set of challenges too. Mm. And we were incredibly remote. Um, the journey just to get there was huge, you know, plane rides, bus rides, walks. We were really just out absolutely in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah, a few things went amiss on that trip. I um, nearly died twice. The first time we were in a boulder field um, and it wasn't till we were in the boulder field that we realized the danger we were in because the whole thing was moving. Mm. So when you stepped from one boulder to the next, it sort of uh, triggered uh, movement. And it was a very steep slope full of these boulders. And the average size boulder was was the size of my uh, like Ford Fiesta car. It's and gonna I'll hurt never, if it clips you. Oh my god! I'll never forget that 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 sound haunts me to this day of the moving rocks, and I just thought it, you know, it was just as dangerous to go up as it was to go down, as it was to go left or right. We were literally in it, um, and I there was eight of us, and I just thought this is just going to end up bad. This is going to go wrong, mm. especially if the whole lot comes down, and then we're all you know we're all dead. Um, and yeah, sure enough, the girl behind me, um, a, a boulder, um, came loose and, um, la- you know, she had a, um, crush wound on her leg. I thought her, um, lower leg was going to be dismembered. And the worst thing is, is that she was obviously in a great deal of pain and then kind of passed out and, um, we had to move her the, the boulder she was on was hinging two other boulders behind it, keeping them back. So it was just, it was a pretty um, intense 
rescue and we had to take a higher up onto the mountain because we'd run out of daylight before we could lower uh, take her back down lower her back down yeah. so uh, this poor girl like you know her horrendous wound and then to be taken up higher on the mountain and there was lots of rock fall in the night and i was just thinking oh my god what are we doing here this place maybe doesn't want us here you know <laughs> yeah uh, anyway we got her down that turned out to be a, a, a big big day of uh it was a big um evacuation to get her to get her down to safety and then she had to be strapped to a horse for about six hours and then put on a bus and a putting a you know russian furlong and da 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 anyway we went back up and um i remember uh half the team were experienced um and half the team were sort of what i call um totally oblivious but in some ways that was a good thing um it got extremely steep the slope and it took a lot longer than we thought it was going to. And I remember the, the real heat of the morning sun was actually uh, cracks were appearing on this very steep slope. And it was just a slab avalanche waiting to happen. And we were all roped together. It, it feels strange for me to be roped together in two teams of four because you obviously, you know, it could save you, but you could also be dragged straight off the mountain as well and having come from a fixed line background more than a you know sort of glacial travel rope together uh situation it was it was quite intense we got to the mountain we got to the top we summited um that was probably my least favorite summit in that i knew that we had to get back down tracks were still there and the heat of the day was still be be beating down and and it was just it was incredibly steep Anyway, long story short, we did get back down, but it was more reliant on luck than I would have cho chosen it to be. Um, it was it was kind of like, yeah, we got away with that as opposed to it being a more measured experience. Um, I think you said before that you learned a lot about your gut instinct on that trip too. Yeah, definitely. Really learned about my gut instinct, and now I absolutely I'm so in tune with my gut in in with the charity work, with business, with adventure. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. My husband told me a brilliant story of when he because he was a base jumper. He's still alive, by the way. He just doesn't base jump anymore. Sorry, I said that <laughs> past tense. Yeah, he was he was a base jumper not. until that one fateful <laughs> day. Lost <laughs> a few friends to base jumping, but um, luckily he's he's still a. Um, but he told me this story and it's always rung in my mind where he hiked, you know, three or four hours to get up on the top of this cliff in Norway and the weather came in and people were just rushing and jumping off of it to try and beat the weather. And he was the only person that just went, nah, this doesn't feel right, turned around, walked back down on his own. And that's always rung around in my mind, you know, just not rushing and making silly mm. mistakes, you know, especially with something like base jumping, but with mountaineering as well. So yeah, I think listening to your gut, but also coming back to knowing your team. And for me, I didn't know everyone in that team. And that was the bit that terrified me, was yeah. the, the people that weren't necessarily aware of the danger that they were in. But in some ways you don't want to tell them because then they could freak out and make, you know, sort of, uh, you know, start making mistakes. So. Yeah, much more choosy now about who, who and how. Um, I think the team leader for that was absolutely brilliant and made good decisions. But um, yeah, it was it was it was quite um, re relied too much on luck for my for my liking. And um, moving to another time you've been to Mongolia, the first time I wanted to ask you, how did it feel spontaneously galloping with a herd of wild horses? Insane like probably one of my best adventuring moments um yeah i mean i just to quickly tell you the story of that so two yeah. weeks after i got home from everest uh skydive everest i got a phone call saying hi holly would you like to take part in another world first adventure and i so said yes. yes i said <laughs> yes what is it and they said it's a thousand kilometer horse race across mongolia on semi-wild horses i knew i had the experience to do it i had the skill set so um absolutely went for it um but yeah one of the experiences was a day that i was out riding on my own and um came across this herd of wild horses at a watering hole 
and the whole lot, there's probably 300 horses there, and the whole lot just moved off at full gallop, and I went with them. And the noise, the thundering noise of the hooves and the energy, it was like, it was like a tsunami wave, you know, it was yeah. unbelievable. And I was thinking, how is this going to end? If I fall off, I'm dead. I think my horse was freaking out, but I had nowhere to go. Um, <laughs> um, That's it. And then I just really thought, no, seriously, where is this going to end up? And luckily they just galloped to another watering hole. All came to a halt got into the water and I was just like we are going over here now just tried to edge away maintaining eye contact with them the whole time like I'm I'm really I'm going now guys bye mm. and, and just got away from them I mean where could, where would that have ended up we could have just been galloping from waterhole to waterhole for, for it's just several days you know at the finish line here comes Holly <laughs> oh there goes Holly <laughs> with all her, her new mates <laughs> yeah. Holly her herd of 300 so yeah that was just one story but there was lots that went on yeah. on that trip and it was a really it was incredible just incredible to journey. see the country with that level of freedom um so it took nine took me nine days 13 hours a day in the saddle um literally gps with no topographical information um, and from losing horses in the mountains to sinking in bogs to avoiding fermented mare's milk with the locals, as in stayed with the locals, ate with the locals. Yeah. This, this air ag, this fermented mare's milk was just like rocket fuel. So um, bowls, of bowls of vodka was the alternative. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it, the bowl was to go around, but it turns out it was one bowl per person. So Jeez. pretty much drank bowls of vodka to avoid the, the mare's milk. Like but yeah, what a, what a way to see the country. Like just freedom, total freedom. So I love Mongolia, one of my favourite, favourite places. Um, and the people are amazing too. Yeah, what an experience. <laughs> So before we get to some, some wrap-up questions, then to finish off, I, I always ask my um, guests this one question, which is, you know, you've had an incredible career from skydiving to horseback and, and mountains in between, which is quite nice. But what is one moment that you would love to relive? Whoa, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, one moment I would love to relive. Um, I've probably mentioned quite a few of those moments from the summit of Everest to, to being with those horses. I'm probably going to go with the first time that I saw an elephant in the wild in the, you know, not in a safari tour or a Jeep, just on foot um, with an elephant and her calf, probably 50 meters away. Oh. And the rangers like saying back up slowly, slowly back up. We need to leave intense incredible put goosebumps even now thinking of it like just mm. seeing those beautiful animals out out in their natural habitat um and um yeah i'd say everyone laughed at me in africa when i was you know in zimbabwe and in south africa particularly because i got so excited when i saw the uh the, you know the, the elephants out in the wild it's just something magical about it i'm gonna go with that so three wrap-up questions then so first one if you could skydive over one location where would it be oh there you go um probably i reckon it would be really cool skydiving one of the poles it's been done but i reckon um that just just skydiving onto a massive open sheet of ice and i've never been to antarctica or arctic so either one of them yeah, which is an odd answer because skydiving you think you'd go for the view but just going for the absolute total remote you know yeah. silence would be quite eerie i'd say you said before how you're keen to pursue more first ascents of unclimbed mountains so if you had perfect conditions what's one first ascent you do right now uh so in the himalayas in nepal they open up um mountains that have never been climbed before so um, I've absolutely got my eye on one of those. Yeah, it's a kind of the race is on when Nepal opens up mountains. You can imagine mountaineers are making a beeline. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, there is one I have that I would love to climb. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's be about having the right uh, team as well. You know, really making the 
that side of it work as well. But no, definitely. Um, Nepal's my favourite place. Like I could literally spend a, a lifetime in the Himalayas. That's a place that I, when I get there, I feel like, yeah, this is a form of home. Yeah. You know, I love it. Perfect. And then lastly, where can we see more of your updates and follow your journey? Yep. So uh, hollybudge.com is my website. That's all my adventure and my speaking. Um, and howmanyelephants.org is my charity website. And uh, so you can find out lots more or Instagram at hollybudge or at howmanyelephants. Lovely. Um, yeah. Perfect. Well, listen, I'll put all of that in the show notes anyway. Uh, so people can click it and check it out and have a look but Holly thank you so much for coming onto the podcast I really appreciate it thank you absolute pleasure thank you Chris thank you so much for listening get in touch and send us your thoughts on btmtravelpod at gmail.com like and follow the podcast on social media with the links in the show notes and below I hope you have a fantastic day and I will see you in the next one.